Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to On The Tape. I am Dan Nathan. I am here with my co-host, Guy Adami, and our special Monday co-host, Liz Young, EY from SoFi. She's the head strategist at SoFi. Liz, welcome. Thank you. Welcome back is what you should say. Welcome back. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just correct me on my own podcast. Well, Guy Adami, yeah. how you doing here, bud? It was a kind of a... I'm strong. I'm feeling so good. EY was out in the C... What do they call it? The CLA or CAL or so Cal? You're out in the West Coast. Yeah. Back here on the East Coast, my football giants never were in the game Saturday night. Disappointing. But you know what, Dan? As they say, the four best teams are left standing. I am looking forward to it. But more importantly, I'm looking forward to these Monday conversations with Elizabeth Young. We're going to cover a lot of ground here today. The market has opened. We are shortly after the opening on Monday here. The NASDAQ is partying. A lot of things going on there. Some some activist action in the sales force. I think it's getting a lot of investors saying, listen, if the big money is going after these things, maybe we should too. But we also have a lot of earnings on tap across lots of different sectors. Guy, you and I had the pleasure of sitting down Friday afternoon with Chris Sidiel. He is the managing partner and co-founder of the Ambrose Group. That has a vol fund that employs tail risk strategies. He breaks down what transpired as far as markets relative to the volatility markets in 2022 and how things have changed in 2023. So that's a great conversation. So stick around for that. All right, guys, let's just kind of get out of the gate here, man. The NASDAQ is up nearly 8% on the year, 8%. It was down, I think at its lows, about 35% last year. Guy, talk to me a little bit about just kind of expectations into earnings season. There's also kind of this tailwind, I think, of activism where you're seeing big money go after some of these names. I 
just mentioned, Salesforce is the one today. And again, you know, Salesforce is, was down, I think, 60%, 70% from its all-time highs. While that's not particularly important, we spent some time last year talking about some of the key management departures here. Just as far as sentiment as it relates to NASDAQ, earnings, percent off the highs, all that sort of stuff, valuations, thoughts here, because we got Microsoft out of the gate tomorrow, Tuesday, after the close. And that's really going to set the tone uh, for the broader tech earnings. Yeah, as we've gotten into this year, I mean, there's clearly enthusiasm for a lot of these high growth, high valuation tech names that obviously got taken out to the woodshed over the previous 18 months, deservedly so, by the way. And I think also on the back of that, the fact that 10-year yields continue to sort of drift lower, I think it's keep giving people some impetus, some beer muscles, as they say, to get into some of these names, sort of buy first, ask questions later. And we'll see. I also think there's a misguided belief out there that, you know, this Federal Reserve is going to pause and then maybe pivot at the back half of this year. I think they've made it abundantly clear that although they may pause at some point, rates are going to stay higher for longer. And that's going to create a bit of a problem for equities. I don't think, by the way, that we've felt at all the impact of the last year's Fed raising, balance sheet reducing. And I think we're starting to feel it. So, I understand what people are looking at. I get it. I think, again, it's somewhat um, early in the cycle. I think they're going to be disappointed. But I see what's going on here in the first couple of weeks of 2023. Yeah, and we want to hit that narrative of kind of it seems to be consensus now that there's going to be a soft landing and the probability of recession is declining. Our friend, the macro elf, who has been on our podcast before, that's Alfonso Pecatiello. He had a great post out over the weekend, and we're going to go through that a little bit. But Liz, I'm curious, you know, like we just mentioned Microsoft and the reporting, you know, after the close. And, and, and again, you know, here's a stock that's basically unchanged on the year. But if I look at my fact set page, you know, my main page here, and I'm looking at hundreds of tickers, okay? And I see no shortage of them are up 10, 20, 30%. Now, these are some of the ones that absolutely got massacred last year. We don't have earnings for a lot of these names. And I think the guy's point, I mean, you know, interest rates going higher was one of the major impetuses for valuation contraction. Started at the end of 2021, and it was all of 2022, fairly relentless. Thoughts on when you see this sort of price action right out of the gate? And again, we are not a month into this year, and we have an S&P that's up 4.5% and a NASDAQ that's up nearly 8%. It seems like this might be a hard thing to kind of maintain. At some point, we're going to have to have a retest of some levels, whether it be at least unchanged, but maybe even again, I know Guy and I have been focused on those October lows. Thoughts when you see this sort of sentiment in the new year? Well, first of all, and, and I brought my raspy voice today. I know I said I was in SoCal. It sounds like I was in Vegas, but Vegas is like my worst nightmare. When you look at what's happening with rates and then what's happening in the NASDAQ versus the S&P versus the Dow, like you said, last year was completely rate driven. And I talked about this on Market Call on Thursday. This year is going to be valuation driven. And what I think is happening, you know, the timing of it, first of all, is the NASDAQ fell first and it fell harder and then obviously had a much harder 2022 than the S&P and the Dow did. But you have to also think about the fact that as rates fall, they're going to probably overshoot. The market's going to overshoot on the upside and get overly optimistic about some of that stuff. And, you know, I do think that we're getting maybe a bit ahead of ourselves, but we're also probably past peak hawkishness in the Fed, right? Past peak hawk commentary. And that's what some of this is about. So, the stuff that got hit the hardest by that hawkish commentary is going to bounce. And and look, if you're down 70%, it probably is going to bounce better than the rest of it. But I don't think that this is something that is going to last and that we should say, okay, and declare victory. And, and here we are with this 
this new theme. I don't think they can get more hawkish than they've been. And they parade out seemingly somebody new each day to sort of talk that way. But I agree, it's somewhat, I think the market has become what desensitized to a lot of that rhetoric. And the problem that I think they're going to face is as the markets go higher, that's counteracting what they're trying to do. They don't want asset prices to go higher. Quite frankly, they want them to go the other way. So the higher asset prices go in the form of equities that we're talking about, I think the more difficult it makes their job. So it's one of those things where they've created this environment and the higher equities goes, the, the more difficult it gets. And by the way, if the commodity market starts getting back on its horse and you know, not that we need to get down the crude oil, but OIH, those oil services stock, big cap integrated names continue to do well. Copper's gotten itself off the mat. Base metals have gotten themselves off the mat. Grains have rallied recently. Again, that just makes a difficult job that much more difficult. So I think the equity market, to Liz's point, is really starting to get ahead of itself at these levels, 4,000 or so in the S&P as we're sitting here. Guy, you I mean, you've seen more cycles than Dan and I combined. <laughs> so I she did that. When- <laughs> By the way, when you say cycles, you know, I think immediately of like the rinse cycle. I am a master at laundry. That's not for this podcast, but I will tell you, if you need anything laundered, I'm your guy. Back to you. Love laundry. Anyway, you've seen all these cycles. What does the activism piece of this tell you? So for example, I look at, if you start to hear things like M&A heating up, number one, the first question I ask is, is it happening for a financial reason or a strategic reason? If it's happening for financial reasons, not a good sign. What does the activism piece of what's happening right now tell you? I love that question. You would hope that it signals a bit of a bottom here, but to think that these mostly men, but quite frankly, men and women can time the bottom in terms of when they're making these activist stakes, I think it's somewhat foolhardy. I understand what they're looking at, but I also don't think that you can look at it as a timing mechanism. So a lot of people will look at this Salesforce recent activism that we all read about this morning and say, you know, Elliott Group getting behind it, Salesforce has seen the worst. I don't think it really plays out necessarily that way. I'll go back and give you Procter & Gamble, I don't know, six or seven years ago when Nelson Peltz announced that he took a stake in Procter & Gamble. He didn't ring the bell on the bottom. As a matter of fact, in the short term, he rung the bell on the top. So if you think that somehow you can look to activists as a timing mechanism, I think it's wrong. So to answer your question, I don't think necessarily it indicates that we're towards the beginning of something nor towards the end of the something. I think they're just sort of finding their way in the beginning of the year, looking for stocks that they think they can make an impact on and going from there. But if you're looking at it as to trade around it, I think that's a bit of a fool's errand. A lot of these firms have been compiling these positions for a while, right? And they announce them at a certain point because they a, have to because of the filings when they reach a certain stake or so. I do think that if you put it together with the idea that private equity, to your point, is starting to buy some software companies. We've seen Toma Bravo has been really active over the last year. They raised a big fund coming into 2022, and they've been deploying that capital. They've been paying valuations to take companies private that seem probably rich in the public markets right now. The other one I'd say is keep a close eye on when insiders start buying again. We know that that was a big story towards the end of 2021. In 2022, we saw a lot of insiders selling. So I think the combination of activism, the combination of financial buyers, do we see some strategic M&A? And then if insiders start buying, we're probably out of the woods, at least from a valuation standpoint. But to your point, Liz, and I think it's important you mentioned is that a lot of what we saw last year was contraction in valuations because rates going higher, we didn't really see that some of the biggest companies, let's say, in our markets, they weren't 
speaking to a declining demand environment just yet. They were just seeing multiple compression, and I think that's important. Let's get to the macro ALFs piece. He's the macro compass, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And the title of this piece was Recession or Soft Landing. And it's interesting because he gives a lot of data here. It just seems the narrative right now is that markets, uh, both the bond market and the stock market, are pricing in a soft landing here. And I think this is just kind of important. You know, Guy, you just mentioned that why the Fed governors have been trying it out. We know that they go into a quiet period in front of their Feb 1 meeting. I just It drives me crazy when I see these headlines, the idea that it's going to be a surprise that they're only going 25 basis points at the March meeting. We, we talk about the CME Fed Fund tracker you know, almost every day on our pods, and it's pretty accurate about what um, Fed Fund futures are predicting. So like the idea that it's some surprise that it's only going to be 25, I mean, we get it. So as it relates to the equity market, he's saying that the recession probabilities are about 50 to 20%. The soft landing is about 60 to 70%. And then the acceleration of growth is about 15 to 20. Here's the worst case scenario, the best case scenario, let's say, are about 20% the way he's barbelling this thing. And then the soft landing is like almost a 60% probability. Do you guys think the bond market and the stock market are pricing right now any of those barbell sort of things? Obviously not here. They just I, seem I don't like- think so. I, I'm not sure the bond market knows what it's trying to price. I think the bond market, and there are people that come on air on CNBC and talked about this is one of the most confusing environments they've ever seen in terms of interest rates and what the bond market's been doing. And I got to tell you something, when 10-year yields move, and we saw this last week, Dan, 16 basis points over the course of a couple hours, I mean, I think that still speaks to a bond market that's extraordinarily confused. And I would submit, and I'm not suggesting I'm right, but 10-year yields going lower in this environment is not suggestive of a soft landing, anything but. It's suggestive of an economy that continues to deteriorate. And the back end with two-year yields, in my opinion, probably going to stick here around 4% and sort of trend higher. That speaks to an inflation problem that although probably peaked in June, and we've said this for quite some time, not probably you know, more than almost certain that 9.1% prints the highest you're going to see in a long time, it means that inflation is still persistent and pesky. And that's a conversation we've been having. So under that backdrop, I don't know, and I'm not an economist, I don't understand how one can have a 60% probability of a soft landing. I'm not a classically trained economist either, but I, I pretend to play one on TV. So I have so much to say. I listened to this whole thing. I understand his stance in that the bond market isn't pricing it. So his whole thing about the bond market is that it's pricing in only 200 basis points of cuts Mm -hmm. between June 2023 and December 2024. If we end at 5% terminal rate, 200 basis points of cuts only takes us down to 3%. So his point is that the Fed funds rate will never go below neutral. And that's not what happens in a recession. If you go into a recession, the Fed funds rate goes below neutral. Fair, fair statement. So he's saying the bond market is not assuming a recession. But there was no mention of the yield curve inversions. There's no mention of the fact that those are actually signaling quite a, a bad scenario. And then the equity market, I completely agree the equity market isn't pricing in a recession, but that's why I think it's going to have another drawdown because it has to get there, right? But I want to do an exercise. You guys tell me, what is a soft landing? And I'm, I'm going to answer it first. In my opinion, a soft landing is not a recession, right? A soft landing is that GDP growth stays positive. We don't have a recession. A recession means that we didn't stick the landing. I don't care if it's mild. I don't care if GDP growth is negative 0.8%. That's not a soft landing. And I think this narrative is like, oh, a soft landing is that we have this kind of mild pullback or we have a contraction in growth. I disagree. I think a soft landing is that 
we don't have a contraction at all. And the definitions are different. We haven't mentioned unemployment yet. You know, we've spent some time talking about all these like high tech job cuts and it started in the private markets last year. We saw a lot of stuff around crypto and Web3. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a huge acceleration, Salesforce, Google, Amazon, Microsoft. So to me, I think that's kind of the missing piece of the puzzle here because we've been blessed. I, I want to say this guy, you know, we get a lot of email, we get a lot of tweets and we really try to deal with the unemployment part of this in a very sensitive manner, you know, when we're out there talking talking about it because we know that these are people's livelihood. It's a really sad commentary that we actually have to address this, that the last piece of the puzzle for the Federal Reserve is to cool the jobs market, right? At three and a half percent unemployment, where we were on the last reading in December, that's a 40-year low, that's a pre-pandemic low, and it really doesn't mesh up with a lot of the other things that we've seen in the economy. So that's one thing that they need to see happen. You know, I don't know if it's 4%, I don't know if it's 5% or whatever. So that's that. As it relates to GDP, the pre-pandemic average for 10 years in GDP growth was about 2.2%. Just think about that. We are literally forever in a low growth environment. And again, this goes back to technology technology. And just we spent some time talking about the AI and this chat GPT. I mean, this is just another example of massively deflationary technology finding its way into our economy. So again, soft landing to me, I don't really care about two consecutive negative quarters of growth. The truth is when we finally know that we have those two consecutive quarters, the markets will have already discounted that, right? So I guess the question is, is like, what is a hard landing? A hard landing is a protracted, you know, economic contraction with high unemployment, employment, the soft landing scenarios are putting to bed that whole theory of stagflation where we're going to have higher for longer prices, right? And a low growth environment. And so those arguments have just been kind of wiped out with when you think about where equity markets are, where high yield credit is, where the VIX is. And we're going to get into more of the VIX with our main man, Chris Cidiel. You guys are going to love that conversation. So stick around when we go off the tape here. But to me, I feel like the worst case scenarios are like low probability. They're like tail risk events, right? now, Guy. Soft landing to me is, you know, maybe unemployment ticks up to either side of 4%. There's no hiccup in the credit markets. The equity markets have bottomed. You know, we saw the bottom in the equity markets in October. You know, maybe we sort of vacillate around 4,000 or so. The Fed's able to reduce their balance sheet with no material impact, and they can basically allow rates to continue at these levels without affecting the underlying economy. To me, that's a soft landing. I, I just don't see it for the life of me I don't see how that can happen in, in this environment. And I think there's obviously a hope that that happens, but along the way, something breaks. And I think that they're aware of that as well. I don't think a possible outcome, by the way, is 5% unemployment. And I don't think a possible outcome is a recession. I think that is the desired outcome. And I think they're going to do everything they possibly can to get there because they understand some of the underlying issues that are going on in terms of inflation and how sticky it is. So I'm hard pressed to believe under, under the guidelines, under the definition that I give, how we can get to that soft landing that everybody seems, well, not everybody, but consensus seems to be sort of grasping and, and getting their arms around. We've also mentioned this, that we're in the throes of New Year rally here. But if you go back and you look over the last year, going back to you know March, April of 2022, then we had the June to August rally in the summer. And then we had that pretty epic mid-October to early December rally. I think they averaged about 15% off of a low. They all were in and around a Fed 
Fed meeting. They were all in and around earnings season. So let's just kind of think about what's going on right here. New year, new calendar, new money being put to work, new narratives. I think people are just sick of that kind of bear market mentality that they've been on. I think the realization- And I'm interrupting, I apologize. But when you say that people are sick of it, it's so true when you say that. And I can speak, I know, Dan, you probably can as well. EY, I'm not sure if you get the same vitriol we get, but the responses (laughs) are overwhelmingly, you guys are waiting, when are you going to stop being, you're so negative, you're so, I can't stand anymore, you're so negative. I understand that. People don't want to hear the negative. I totally get it. You know, I try to be market agnostic and I don't want to necessarily hear negative stuff all the time as well, but we're just trying to, I think, interpret what we see and then spit out our opinions based on that. So to your point though, Dan, there is definitely a fatigue going on around some of the negativity. And maybe to a certain point that becomes self-fulfilling if people just said, you know, I can't stand it anymore. I want to be optimistic. And they start putting their money where their mouth is. Hold on. So the other thing is, yes, I get the vitriol. I I completely do. I get it from all angles. I get it in DMs. I get it in public statements. I, I get it everywhere. And one of the latest ones was I had gone on CNBC and somebody made a comment on the clip that was posted. Oh, she obviously missed this 500 points in the S&P. Yeah, I did. I missed a 14-day rally. It's not my job to call a 14-day rally. And if I was trying to tell people to get in the market and get back out 13 days later, what am I doing? I'm chasing my own tail, right? So that's not the point. I would never try to do that. And I gladly will miss a 14-day rally because I still believe it wasn't real and I still believe we're going to give it back. So if we're trying to catch that kind of stuff, you know, I'm not the right person to listen to as it is. As far as what's the math that this is the stuff I look at to say, you know, did I miss something? Is there a durable rally here? And then I look at the math and there just can't be. And I'm going to, I'll tell you a couple things here. So we're obviously in the throes of earnings season. Earnings estimates this year, this is bottom line, right? Earnings suggesting three and a half to 4% growth in earnings for 2023. Revenue growth is only supposed to be two and a half to three percent. Mathematically, that means that margins are supposed to expand somehow in an environment where we're going to keep rates higher for longer. Higher for longer means margins contract. The math just doesn't math on that. Something's got to give there and the market's not pricing that incorrectly. The other thing is, and this is what I think is a surprise, could be a surprise curveball that the bond market hasn't quite digested yet. And this comes from Strategus. This I'm going to quote what they put out as a, this is one of the things that investors maybe don't know. Nearly 50% of all of America's outstanding sovereign debt matures within the next three years. Yet the weighted average cost of Uncle Sam's outstanding debt is a mere 1.8%. The cost of three-month American paper is currently 4.5%. So the way that we're estimating how much our debt is even going to cost us is completely underestimated, right? And we have to, at some point, roll that I think that could be a surprise. It makes the case why ultimately we're going to see rates come in at some point as soon as the economy does start to weaken. And and again, that means inflation's under control. Unemployment goes up to a certain point. And I guess the point I would just say is about the sentiment of sort of what we feel from viewers, from listeners, kind of push back to trying to point out what could go wrong here. We've seen this now over the course of the last year in three big instances, right? And and I really do believe that we're kind of in that mode right now. And I I think a lot of people want to say, listen, you know, we're getting below. This is from our friend John Butters over at Facts that the forward 12-month PE ratio for the S&P 500 of 17 is below the five-year average of 18.5 and below the 10-year average of 17.2. So if you're thinking about valuation metrics here, you say that's fine, but rates are still much higher. And that's a big differential. If you think about the average PE, that was predicated on much lower rates over the last five and 10-year period. And 
so again, uh, why earnings this season are really important. We've had these big rallies over the course of the last year. It's happening now at a time where the Fed is most likely set to pause over the next few months or so. And now what's being priced for the declines in rates over the next year and a half or so starting mid this year. I mean, that's going to be a key ingredient to the bull case, I think, for stocks going forward here. I think we're all in the same camp, though, guy, is like, get us back to 3400 Start discounting what the base case scenario is for a soft landing, and then we can get a lot more constructive on stocks. I just want to make one point about a sector I know, Liz, you are bullish on, not at the moment. I think you saw some things in financials earnings that got going, and we're going to see some more stuff on the credit front. We know we have American Express this week. You know, the bank stocks, there were a couple outliers, but, you know, J.P. Morgan, after its huge runoff, its October lows, is trading exactly where it was the day before it reported earnings. You know, so the group in general has gone sideways. And so I don't love the setup of a rally into earnings at a time where I think that outliers are going to be to the downside. And I think at any excitement about what stocks have done is basically because they're not as bad as people expected. How are all of us wrong? How are all of our beautiful statements we make wrong? Is that if companies had so much time to see this coming, that they actually are ready and they've cut costs more, maybe more than they needed to, and then things don't end up in that sort of Armageddon scenario, or what did Jamie Dimon call it, an economic hurricane? If it's not as bad as they prepared for, then there isn't this big collapse. That's I think that's the one way that we're that all three of us are wrong. But I think you're right. I, I don't think the right setup for earnings is to rally into it, especially right now in the first quarter where we're expecting negative earnings growth, right? The first quarter since 2020. And the financials earnings were kind of all over the place, right? It really depended on the company. I think that's probably going to continue to happen at least for a couple quarters. But, you know, if you look at earnings and, and what you can buy in this environment, even though the market doesn't have a recession baked in, you want to buy stuff that can produce positive results in either scenario. And I still think financials is one of those sectors. One of the reasons why we talk about Tesla a lot, a, a year, maybe 14 months ago, it was the fifth largest equity in our stock market. It had $1.2 trillion market cap. There was really no fundamental case to be made at that time why it should command a trillion dollar market cap. And again, we thought this was like the king of the meme stocks guy, right? We thought that it just encapsulated a lot of the speculative frenzy that existed in, in large parts of, of the market and the stock market. But also other markets, and therefore we started talking about it a whole heck of a lot. Since the start of December, the stock was cut in half at its lows in January. So this was in about a month. The stock went from 200 to 100, down from 400 over a year ago. Reporting after the close on Wednesday, okay, the stock's up 40% from its lows, still an important name from a sentiment standpoint, in my opinion, okay? So, like, the stock running into it, I don't care how much is down off of its highs, as our friend Danny Moses likes to say. Is this the most important stock reporting this week? And again, we have Microsoft, we have Boeing, we have American Express, we have Chevron, we have a bunch of other smaller tech names. From a sentiment standpoint, how much we've rallied into earnings season, what we know from the bank's reactions to their earnings— What's most important to you this week? Personally, I don't think it's the most important by any stretch of imagination. I'm sure the network and a lot of the media outlets will spend a lot of time speaking about Tesla, but I never really thought, in my opinion, the market really viewed Tesla as an earning story. Maybe this is the quarter that they'll start. To your point, we've gone from 102 to 140, pretty much in a straight line over the last couple of weeks. And we've seen other stocks do that as well. And now we're talking about a company whose market cap is north of $400 billion again. So Personally, I think it's gotten a little ahead of itself. The company that I think is most important this week, because I think it sort of speaks to a 
a wide range of different things is Microsoft, which oddly enough, as we sit here, is trading 242. I mentioned that, Dan, because back in June when they reported, stock closed that day that they reported around 256 in the aftermarket on the back of a pretty miserable um, quarter, the stock was trading 242. They subsequently said that they were not seeing demand destruction along with the broader market, the stock rallied and almost got up to $300. But here we are having traded significantly lower than current levels and significantly higher. But here's the point that's interesting. They haven't talked about demand destruction. Given all the layoffs we've seen from companies that effectively are clients of Microsoft, I think it's just a matter of time. And this might be the quarter that they speak exactly about that. And this is the one that I'm watching most closely. This was one of the first mega cap tech stocks to actually have a negative pre-announcement in 2022. It was the calendar Q2, I think it was late June, and they warned on FX. And I think it's really important to remember that you were talking about margins and you're gonna be really focused on what companies have to say about margins, the cost cutting. We've seen a lot of the job cuts ahead of the reports, okay? But when you think about the US dollar for some of these major US multinationals, you know, it's trading at levels it has not been at, guy, since June. So the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index, is at 102. It topped out just below 115 in September. And I know that this was on the radar of many, many CFOs at, at multinationals here. Talk to us a little bit about that, Liz, because, again, I mean, something that was a massive headwind when these companies reporting their Q2 in the summer or their Q3 in the fall, it's moderated pretty massively, um, you know, the U.S. dollar index, and that is a huge input, especially now if you're cutting costs with high value jobs, right? A lot of these job cuts that are happening at these major tech companies, these are engineers, these are kind of white collar jobs. These are not like an Amazon, not a lot of line workers and they're readjusting some of their logistics. So is that likely to be like a bit of a cushion for margins as we kind of think about 2023? You have to split up the sectors into pieces though. So Think about what Microsoft announced they were going to lay off 10,000 by the third quarter, I think was the timeline timeline of that. Microsoft is a, a pretty mature company in this space. When the tech layoffs started, there was a lot of conversation about, well, these are younger companies. They got, they got bloated, right? They invested in order to grow and they don't know how to cut. And now they're learning that they have to cut, but it's reactive instead of proactive, right? I think Microsoft is doing this in a more proactive way. This is also a year where the market is going to reward good stewardship of capital, right? And good cost controls, especially as we think companies' margins are going to be compressed. As far as the Tesla thing, I mean, falling in consumer discretionary, first of all, I made I made a final trade on, I think it was December 1st, to sell consumer discretionary. And thanks to Tesla, I looked like a genius. It, was, it had nothing to do with Tesla whatsoever. But either way... That had that was not an earnings situation, right? Tesla hasn't fallen because of earnings. They haven't fallen because of any well, of that. Well, it was a valuation it's, story. I mean, it was that valuation, was really, yeah. but it was also steward of capital, right? It was it was connected to Twitter, and and there's all this other stuff that was going on with it. I think in a year like this, especially in the tech sector, you're going to have to be rewarded for tightening the purse strings, so to speak, in a proactive way. And I think that's what Microsoft has done. You know, Boeing has had this massive wrong. There's uh, some other industrials. You know, there was a huge rotation in the fall out of mega cap tech into energy, into industrials, into staples, and into a whole host of other that actually kind of got expensive. You know, it's ironic that people were coming out of tech names on valuation basis, and they were moving into some areas that they thought were a bit defensive, but they got really expensive too. So I, I'm 
actually curious to see how some of these industrial names, some of these energy names, Chevron's at the end of the week here. Um, thoughts on non-tech earnings right now, Guy? In order for Boeing to deserve the valuation that they currently have, they have to grow earnings almost by about 100%. Boeing, believe it or not, has become one of the more expensive stocks out there. And I just don't see how that's going to happen. Again, I understand the run. I talk about free cash flow story. I get it. I get all those things. But right before our very eyes, Boeing's become extraordinarily expensive. And just to sort of go back quickly to Microsoft, these companies don't lay people off for the sake of just laying people off. Because in order to rehire a lot of these people, I mean, they're really going to have to probably pay up. It's It's an arduous process. So the question I think you have to ask yourself is, what do all these companies see coming that gives them the clarity to have the, the kind of layoffs that they're seeing? Because it just doesn't all turn on a dime. And that's the thing that I think we're going to learn a lot more about over the coming week. I think we have 93 S&P 500 companies this week. We're going to learn a lot more over the next two. All right, I'm going to give you my sleeper, a name that I want to keep a really close eye on about what they have to say relative to expectations. I want you guys to think about your sleeper, okay, that that you have to keep an eye on um, this week. Mine is Texas Instruments. And, Guy, you're going to find this kind of interesting. So this is a name that is not exposed to the smartphone cycles and some of the, you know, the PC cycles, a lot of the stuff that we saw a pull forward to. They really have a lot of exposure to industrial. So this would be like the perfect early cycle semi-play, in my opinion, we know that semis in general are early cycle. This is important to me. They're going to report in a few days here. The stock trades about 23 times 2023 estimates that earnings are expected to be down mid-teens, sales high single digits. So, so we're already expecting to see year-over-year declines, okay, trading above a market multiple, trading above many of its peers, forget NVIDIA, but throw in Intel and AMD and Micron and a handful other names. I think what this company has to say is going to be really important. And I actually think it would probably surprise the upside because estimates are already lower. Guy, do you have something that is under the radar that you think our listeners should focus on this week into earnings? So the one that I'm watching, it potentially could be a surprise either way, would be American Express, which, you know, topped out. I think stock made an all-time high, if I'm not mistaken, in February of 2022, somewhere around $200, probably just short of that, currently trading about $154. And the reason why I bring up American Express, if you think about the job cuts that are going on now across a variety of sectors... I mean, it's effectively American Express's customer. And you think about business travel and those types of things. And then layer upon that, Discovery Financial talking about increasing uh, credit provisions. American Express takes credit risk. And you're going to start to hear more and more about that. So American Express on Friday, I think, could give you a real nice window as to what's going on with their client. I'm going to give you a two-banger. Uh, not specific companies. This is from my world, but the leading economic index came out about an hour ago while we were doing this. Instead of looking at it just as that reading, look at it as the six-month annualized percent change. The reason you do that is because it's pretty predictive of recessions. Right now, and it, it declined again, right now the six-month annualized percent change, including today's reading, is negative 8.2%. That reading has never gotten below negative three without a recession. So that is screaming, screaming caution, right? The other thing, and this is for next week, but just in case I forget to say it next Monday, is that ISM Services PMI comes out on February 3rd, okay? Everybody watch that because last month we had the first month of contraction in Services PMI. When we have the NBER declare recessions, that recession has 
almost always, I think maybe always, started in the month following a contraction in ISM services PMI. So watch that. We covered a lot of ground here. I think it's a really big week for the markets here. Again, just to recap, we have S&P 4,000. We have the 10-year at 3.5. We have the VIX just below 20. We have high-yield credit doing pretty well. It seems like a pretty decent backdrop to Dixie at 102, as we just mentioned. What companies have to say is probably going to be the most important thing, whether or not we finally break out of this downtrend that's been in place in the S&P for a little over a year. All right, Liz Young, thanks for coming into our studio here. This was a whole heck of a lot of fun. Guy, thanks for bringing it on a Monday after, after, you know, Saturday was a difficult night for you, I have to think. Now, now Guy is going to be locked into the Rangers. I mean, like, Listen. like every market call is, you better be ready because <laughs> we're going to hear about the Rangers. About hockey. We got Ranger hockey tonight. Maybe you should maybe you should embrace the sport of hockey. I understand I that Milwaukee currently does not have a professional yeah. franchise. My sense is they have dozens of, like, AHL teams and your local beer league teams which quite frankly might be fun to go to on some random Thursday night. But you should find yourself an NHL team. I would suggest the Rangers of New York, but whatever you decide, EY, I think you should run with that. I think I will. I have no competing interests, so I'm down. All right, check out Liz. She'll be uh, on the IC this week. That would be the investment committee of the the halftime report with our good friend Scott Wapner. You're going to be back with us on Market Call on Thursdays. Check it out on the Risk Reversal Media YouTube site. That's where we are broadcasting Market Call Monday through Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern from here on out. And just check out our interview with Chris Sidiel of the Ambrose Group when we come back. Chris Sidiel is the co-CIO of the Ambrus Group. Before joining Ambrus, he was part of the exotic derivatives trading team at Bank of Montreal and the proprietary trading team at Zanith Capital and Chimera Securities. Chris gained an in-depth understanding of volatility trading early on as the sole junior trader to the CBOE legend Robert Cantor. Chris is a frequent guest on Bloomberg TV, has been profiled by many financial media publications such as Forbes, Business Insider, Reuters, NASDAQ, and many more. Chris, welcome to On the Tape. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Now, you were in Cranes 20 in their 20s, which is impressive. That means 20 people they highlighted in their 20s. Having not remembering my 20s as they were, you know, some four or five decades ago. Speak to me about that because that's pretty damn impressive. I mean, I was pretty humbled by it as well. I think a lot of it, it's a reflection on the path that I've had coming to where I got on Wall Street. So it was pretty humbling. First, I thought it was a joke, believe it or not. (laughs) Pretty grateful for that. Well, let's talk about that path because it's interesting. You know, when I see somebody, Guy and I have been on the street for a while, and we see that somebody's bio, that they were an exotics derivatives trader. It sounds about as exotic as it gets, doesn't it, Guy? Uh, On Wall Street a little bit. And, you know, both of us spending some time on some specialty desks, trading some specialty products we actually realized that these are the smart guys on the street. So people, you hear people say the smart money. You guys are like the smart guys behind it. So talk to us a little bit about how you got into that. You were on some great desks on Wall Street investment banks, but now at Ambrose, you are deploying a bunch of those strategies for investors. We want to get to that too, but talk to us a little bit about how you got to Wall Street, how you got into exotics derivatives, and then how you pivoted to Ambrose and how you're employing those for investors rather than for trading for an investment bank. My path to Wall Street was very different. What I would say is that I didn't 
didn't have the traditional come out from a target school and get right in. So I actually ended up getting a junior position under the CBO legend Bob Cantor. So Bob ran ETG in the 90s, and I was his sole junior trader for his family office in the Hamptons. And that's really where I started to understand and learn about vol, right? So before that, I wasn't really exposed to volatility. So he really drilled down a lot of core concepts into my head. And from there, I went to two different prop desks, Chimera Securities and Xanthus Capital. On a prop desk, you learn a lot about order flow dynamics, trading, market microstructure. And then from there, I spent three and a half years at a large Canadian investment bank. Most of my time there was on the exotic derivatives and listed options desk. And yeah, you know, on a desk like that, you're thinking about all the different paths that these sort of exotics could have, whether you're trading things like variant swaps, vol swaps, auto callables, knock-in notes, binaries, right? <laughs> all these sort of like weird God, did complex. You lose you? Did he lose you right there? He lost me at the cranes thing, but I'm trying to stay with him. <laughs> <laughs> so all these sort of different combinations of structures and pretty much what I started to notice during my time there was that the market microstructure was changing and myself and a, a couple of my current partners now all believe the same thing, right? So we had this belief that markets were more reflexive now that there were more options that are being traded, right? You see a lot of these charts where it's like, zero DTE options being traded, you know, weekly options being traded. And pretty much what we said was, well, you know, we could structure a volatility portfolio where if you are faced with some sort of exogenous event, right, you have this very large return. If not, your goal is to be relatively close to flat, right? So what this looks like is it serves as a hedge for investors, for their overall portfolio. If an investor, let's just say hypothetically has $100 million, they'll put towards something like $5 million, right, or $10 million. And it's really a defensive alternative. So that's really the goal and the focus of what we do at Ambris. But the roots base back from everything that I've learned on these prop desks and learning under Bob and really cultivating those strategies over time. In your career, what do you think has changed? I will tell you, and in seriousness, so I've been doing this now for, I think this is my 37th year in the business or thereabouts, and obviously a lot's changed. But I think in your time, a lot has changed and so fast. I would imagine the speed with which people get information and how that information is distributed so quickly that's got to be something that probably has been very good for your business, but in some ways has probably created some headwinds as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the transition or you know the change of information and order flow, it shows itself in the markets every single day, right? You, there's times where you'll take a look at the market and you'll be like, oh, the S&P is down 2% and you turn your head and the S&P is up 1%, right? Those are those type of very fast moves that are demonstrating that the microstructure is changing. And, you know, I use this word reflexive because that's really our belief. And that was one of the reasons why we started this fund, because we said, when you look at March of 2020, a lot of people don't realize that was a byproduct of reflexivity. There was a lot of deleveraging that caused the S&P to go down at the same speed that it went down, right? It wasn't that people said, oh, App Apple, you know, should be discounted 40% based on fundamentals, right? It was because people needed to get out because the structure was based so that everybody was holding the same thing and everybody was headed to the exit doors at the same time. So what we said was that over the course of a 10-year cycle, you'll see more of these events, right? So, so you guys have been in the business for a long time, right? You know of the crash of 87, right? And, you know, we could go on and on and on. But historically, every five to 10 years, you'll have one of these sort of like big blowups. And what we're saying is over the course of that time, you're more likely to see these sort of big events take place 
because of the changing microstructure. And you're seeing it every day, right? Just because the S&P doesn't go down, you know, 30% in a month doesn't mean that the systemic risks that exist in it aren't there. We want to hit to some of these other products that maybe people don't think of as it relates to volatility. A big theme that Guy and Danny have been hitting on for over a year is the volatility in the treasury bond market when you think of that. And that's not something that when we were growing up in the business, a guy in the 80s and me in the late 90s, that's not something that most investors had to be focused on too much. But I'm curious to take a step back here. So you were employing some of these strategies at a couple investment banks, a couple prop groups, and you're basically using them to make money, right, for the institutions that you worked for, what was the impetus to kind of take these strategies and say, we want to create a firm that is basically going to employ these strategies on the behalf of investors, right? To help them think about allocations, diversifications, and risk management. Yeah. So I I would say on the investment banking side, the ethos of what drives that trading is very different, right? So not really taking any strategies that were developed there, right? Because you're really just trading as a sell-side trader, right? So you're not really trading as a speculator. However, in, in full transparency, working under Bob and working at those two different prop desks, you learn and and the strategies that you cultivate on desks like that are the strategies that you could look to actually deploy. What we noticed was that when you think of a tail risk fund, the first thing that comes to mind, and, and I'll explain what a tail risk fund is. It's very simple. It's you're serving as sophisticated insurance. Think about sophisticated insurance for a portfolio. So the same way an individual would have insurance on their car, their watch, their home, you're insuring your portfolio so that if the market drops, you're making this large return that will offset the losses that you have. When you think of tail risk, the first thing that comes to mind is people are like, well, you're going to just bleed for years and years and years and years, right? So we looked at that and we said, okay, it is very suboptimal if you bleed for years and years and years as a hedge, right? Because it's a it, huge drag on returns, it, basically. Exactly, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. When you're presenting this to investors, you, you basically said, yeah, five, every five to 10 years, we're going to have an event, right? And they don't all look like each other. So what sort of percentage of a portfolio are you willing to be a drag on performance to mitigate what percentage of a tail event. And I'm curious if that's how you think about it. Right, right. So so this is what I think that we do that's very different from other tail risk funds. Let's say you allocate a million dollars to a tail risk fund and four years goes by and they don't return anything and they just bleed, right? So they bleed all the way down to 200,000 and then they return 4X, right, during a crash. Well, what does that do? You're just back to even, right? So that's not optimal at all in our view. So what we said was, okay, what if we take these strategies that, we understand uh, uh, exist on the prop side, right? These these smaller capacity constraint strategies, but are really core strategies. And we use that to offset the bleed. So instead of bleeding, you know, 80% over five years, let's say you're flat and then a crash occurs. Well, now you're compounding at a much higher return rate. And now, you know, you're returning 4X as opposed to just getting back to break even after five years, right? Very, very big difference. And I think that, that's a that's a key thing that we saw when we looked at a lot of the tail risk funds and a, and a lot of the long volatility funds was that there was not really a fund that stood out that was doing this in an effective way. So we like to believe that we have a bit more of an effective way than doing it than what the market kind of already had. At the end of the month, we're going to be at the iConnections conference in Miami. Hopefully, we're going to see you there as well, Chris. And you know, it speaks to alternative assets. And what I find really interesting is, and you hear this on the network all the time and jargon around the market, the carry trades that people put on. And 
you know, those to your point earlier, your trades don't work until they do. I mean, effectively, when you're talking about tail risk and vol and exogenous events, their trades work until they don't. And that's not meant to be clear. But the point here is they work. But when they don't work, the give back is such that you can effectively give back years worth of gains when these carry trades go to shit. Pardon my French. So you are the antithesis, I would imagine, of the carry trade. Yeah, absolutely. When you're an investor and you're looking about constructing a portfolio, there's nothing wrong with these carry trades, right? It's all a, a component of sizing. You can have things that are carry trades or quote unquote short volatility, but you need to understand that you need to have offsetting things in the portfolio that are designed to, to catch that, right? And when you think of traditional portfolio construction, a lot of financial advisors are still on the 60-40 bandwagon, which is, it, it's shocking to me, right? Because there are billions and billions of dollars that that are still in this thing. And there's nothing wrong with being at 60-40, but when you're in a 60-40 with the belief that bonds will serve as a defensive hedge to your equity exposure, that's wrong. And we saw that this year. You know, you were saying that there's just the underpinnings of the markets. You've seen a lot of changes of late. And so one of the things that the rise of kind of a retail investor. So, you know, Guy asked about information, right? So that's been democratized. A lot of tools have been democratized. You know, in 2009, how I started doing CNBC, I went on a show. It was just starting out there about options, right? It was sponsored by TD Ameritrade. And they wanted to kind of use this program on TV to kind of educate viewers of CNBC, but obviously also their customers or potential customers to how to use options in their portfolio. And I always focused on three main things because spending a time on a derivatives desk, you realize that for the most part, the smartest options, traders, market makers, they want to sell premium, right? And so to me, you know, there's three main usages. One for retail primarily would be yield enhancement. Another would be leverage, which seems to be the most popular, right? And the third would be risk management. And so I'm curious, what has the explosion in retail interest in options done to the markets and how has that changed the markets as it relates to because we've seen this remember guy the period it was august, august of 2020 yeah, that melt up in yep. the nasdaq yep. right and was literally driven by you know softbank we know now after the fact we're just buying you know just out of the money calls anything to get their hands on in every major nasdaq name and you remember that guy what was it 50 cent remember the guy who was buying all those 50 cent uh vix um calls and everything like that it just seems like the dynamics have changed so some of the biggest players that never used to use options from an institutional standpoint, have used them to kind of game markets a little bit. And then the explosion of retail interest, it's created like a bit of a perfect storm, especially at those periods you're talking about when we see deleveraging or we see these kind of blow off tops in markets. I remember that whole SoftBank thing quite vividly because that was a dynamic where you saw spot up and vol up, right? You saw that correlation break where, where volatility was up while uh, tech names were rallying to the upside. I think the most important thing when you're thinking about options currently is the use of leverage and what this means to the financial markets. And I always go back to this example. You know, we were talking about 2008 before we, we started rolling on this. And 2008 was a very key pivotal point because post-2008, you had Dodd-Frank and Basel, right? So when these regulatory changes were implemented, this added to this quote-unquote reflexivity because what this means is that and I'm sure everybody has heard this term by now, dealer gamma hedging. During the whole GameStop thing, we heard we heard a lot about this whole dealer gamma hedging where if an end user buys a call, the desk is now short the call and they need to buy stock and that reflexively drives the price higher. Well, the same thing happens on the downside to puts and the same thing happens on the upside with calls, right? So 
Think about it like this. If we saw a situation where the Reddit users were buying massive amounts of calls on GameStop and it reflexively drove the price higher, well, what happens in a situation if you're faced with some sort of exogenous event and everybody's buying puts? The same way the derivatives market impacts the underlying, it can have that same sort of effect on the broad market and it could work to the downside as well. So I think the leverage component of what options bring, and especially in a time where you have options that are traded every single day of the week now, right? You have SPX contracts expiring every single day now. That is really, really crucial when you're looking at these sort of intraday wild moves that take place because it's showing you that, okay, something is changing and that, I'm going to use this word again, reflexivity that we talk about is presenting itself more and more in markets. It's interesting as we're taping this, the VIX is either side of 20, which I can understand yet I'm sort of puzzled by. And, and we talk about exogenous events. So obviously have conversations around, you know, what could be that type of event? You know, I've posited a number of times that I think potentially China, Taiwan could be that type of event. I think recently this debt ceiling potential crisis could be that. And I've said it on our podcast and I said it on Fast Money a few times that I don't think the market's fully comprehending what could transpire there. What are your thoughts around exogenous events and what you guys and gals are looking at? We try not to take macro themes because we're definitely not macro traders. The way we look at it is we have a process around trading things and we kind of stick to our process in, in order to generate returns on that. You know, we're more trader focused than as opposed to discretionary taking some sort of view on a macro theme. However, I definitely would say that there are a lot of themes that are presenting itself. 2022 was a year where I feel like every day you woke up and there was some sort of new crazy headline that could have potentially dropped markets in a, in a big way. To us, the biggest hazard that we see outside of microstructural hazards, like some of the ones that we just spoke about, we think is the knock-on effect that private markets will have on public markets. And we saw this briefly with the whole guilt market thing, right, the pension plans in, in England. And I think there's a lot of that that actually exists in the U.S. You know, for over a decade now, a lot of private investors have, quote unquote, made money on paper, right? Mark to market up 5% every month, right? These ridiculous, insane valuations. And if we are faced with a recessionary environment where people will need liquidity and need cash, I don't think they'll be able to get that from private markets the same way that they think. And I think what they'll do is they'll sell their public market holdings. Yeah, so that's a theme that we've talked about on the pod a little bit too. And just going back to SoftBank, in a way, the way that they were trying to mark up their public equities after a crazy volatile 2020, right? So that was kind of in the eighth or ninth month of 2020. I mean, they caused a massive short squeeze, but think about at the time, their most illiquid investment in the private markets that they had been marking up, you know, skipping up $10 billion every year or something, whether it was, you know, all the names that they had been investing in the private markets. At some point in 2023, those companies are going to need to be marked lower. So I know that you're talking about gilts and, and that's government bonds in the UK. And there's a whole host of other assets that we think of away from equity markets that a lot of investors have exposure to. But I guess it's really important to kind of think about it this way is that if you have these pools of capital that invest in both public and private and the illiquid private stuff has yet to take meaningful marks that mirror what's going on in the public markets, sooner or later, they're going to sell the stuff that they can sell. And so especially if they 
have big redemptions and the like. I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about the VIX guy just mentioned it either side of 20 here. And it's one that it's pretty simple for just kind of the layman who follows the markets. You hear people talk about the fear gauge, you know, you hear it on CNBC or Bloomberg or, you know, people like us talk about it a little bit. But last year was kind of interesting. When the VIX got down to the high teens, it was a great opportunity to sell stocks. And when it got up near 30 or above 30, it was really a great opportunity to buy stocks. Is that oversimplifying it? You know, you guys have done a ton of quant work on the VIX and how I think investors look at it, how they use it as an input. What are your general thought process, like breaking it down for our listener who hears a lot of people just throw the VIX around, but what what does it really mean to you guys? The VIX is one of the most misunderstood products on Wall Street. We, we wrote a whole paper on how the VIX is changing because of the derivative ecosystem changing as well. That's on our website for anybody that wants to take a look at it. It's important to realize that VIX is a barometer of 30-day implied volatility. And people seem to misunderstand that so much. And what this means is that when you look at 2022, it was a year where a lot of investors believed in the slow grind now. Not too many people believed that there would be a systemic crash that would persist. And the options market reflected that as well. You saw that in the vol pricing. And that's why VIX never really moved. Because one month realized volatility, I think, was up to like 26, 27 or something on, on the high. So you never really had that big, fast crash down that would impact the one month implied vol to really move VIX. So when people are looking at VIX, they have to remember that that's really a weighted average of one month implied volatility as opposed to, you know, a longer time frame. And I think that there are tons of other metrics out there that measure volatility outside of the VIX. You know, one of the things that we find that's so interesting is that you look at VVIX, which is like pretty much VIX on the VIX. So it's like vol of vol. And I think about two weeks ago, you saw this thing touch new lows from like a five-year historical look back, which is insane because what that's telling you is that the market doesn't believe that there will be a systemic crash, although there's such negative sentiment that is persisting right now. So the belief that this slow grind down may continue is outweighing the belief that you'll see equity markets drop. 20% in a month or something like that. As you've probably come to realize over the last 19, 20 minutes, I'm not the sharpest knife in the draw, and, and I'm reading some of your research. So please bear with me a second. Is the VIX becoming increasingly, now wait for it, please, audience, leptokirktic due to the changing <laughs> derivatives market? Now, you know, I didn't go to fancy schools. I think that word has something to do with bell curves and distribution. I'm not quite sure, but you got to walk me through that piece you guys and gals put out. <laughs> so leptokurtic pretty much means fat-tailed. So do we believe that the VIX is becoming more fat-tailed? And, and fat-tailed doesn't necessarily mean to one side specifically. We're more so speaking in relation to both sides. So the interesting thing about VIX this year is we measure something called implied spot vol beta. And really what this means, I know it sounds super complex. It's not, I promise you. What this means is, okay, if the S&P moves a certain amount, what should we expect the VIX to move? That's really what it is in, in layman's terms. And when we measured this for 2022, we saw one of the lowest relationships that we've seen. However, in November and December of 2021, we saw one of the largest relationships that we've seen. 
So clearly, because the derivative ecosystem is changing, what you're seeing is that this dynamic is changing as well. And our belief is that in the next true risk-off event, where everybody is headed to the exit doors at the same time, that relationship will show itself. And what we're saying is that if you go on the street right now and find a financial advisor and tell them, hey, the VIX could go over 100, they'd be like, no way. The VIX can, no way. The VIX can't go over 100. But what we're saying is that because the derivative ecosystem is changing, there is a high possibility that the next time you see a really big move and fall, you'll see the VIX blow out to, to higher. Than okay. And so like, again, when people talk vol in our universe, right on CNBC or on our podcast, they're generally talking about equity linked vol, but like, yep. think about the volatility. And again, I just kind of referenced this before that we've seen in us treasuries that we've seen in currencies. I mean, the U S dollar was the Dixie that, you know, it was trading near 115 just a couple months ago. And now it's 102, right? The 10 year U S treasury yield was four and a quarter, two months ago. Now it's below three and a half, right? Right? And we're seeing it in other commodities. So how do you guys think about vol across different products like that? And I'm assuming that you have models that is kind of weighting all of these risk assets, which is leading you to some of your broader thoughts about what happens on the next tail event. When you're looking at the landscape, you obviously have to assess the way how the bond market volatility will impact equity market volatility as well. Our hedge fund only focuses on equity volatility specifically. However, understanding what's going on in the rates market, what's going on in the FX market, that's that's really important. And what we saw in 2022 was absolutely this completely different relationship that you've seen historically from rates volatility and equity volatility. Usually they would move in tandem. You didn't see that. There was this big dispersion that existed be between the two. So I think the important thing for investors when they're looking at the whole landscape of financial markets is understanding that, okay, race volatility is moving, FX volatility is moving, and equity volatility is dead. <laughs> so somebody's lying, all right? And if this continues, we'll figure out who's lying. But for us, yeah, we, we have certain models that we use to kind of have a good understanding of how the rates market volatility impacts equity market volatility and vice versa. Chris, I think what probably really catapulted your business amongst many things, but GameStop, AMC, you know, all the meme stocks, I think a lot of people got into the market saying, GameStop's going higher. I'm going to put on a call position, take advantage of the price spikes, or conversely, AMC's going lower, I'm going to buy put positions. And directionally, they were probably right. But what they found out the hard way is if they don't understand how options work and premiums that they're paying, how basically things erode over time, they got themselves smoked. So I think it gave people a really introductory lesson to options and options trading, but it lends itself to exactly what you folks are doing there. I think the two big factors in our business was March of 2020. I think a lot of people, allocators and institutional investors, their eyes opened and, and realized, okay, we have to have something in our portfolio that protects against the disaster. Prior to that, you talk about tail risk, nobody wanted to hear it, right? 2017 was a year where everybody was just like, if you're not selling volatility, you're stupid. The GameStop situation was another one where a lot of people learned the hard way, even institutional investors, you know, there was, there was hedge funds outside of Melvin that got destroyed on trying to partake in the derivatives. And I think the directionality component of it 
is something that your average investor thinks, right? They're like, oh, buy a put, the market goes down, you know, I have to make money or vice versa. Buy a call, the underlying goes up, I have to make money. And understanding volatility and the pricing and some of the second order Greeks and, and things of that nature are usually laughed at, right? But there are times where those things become very, very important, right? Where you're a buyer of a put on something like GameStop, it's down 15%. And the puts are losing money. You're like, what is going on, right? Because you didn't realize that the, there was a vol component attached to that. We get these questions all the time. And so I'm just curious, you know, a lot of our listeners are either, you know, fairly sophisticated, self-directed investors. We obviously have a lot of advisors. I know you speak to a, a lot of very sophisticated investors. A lot of institutions are investing in Ambrose here. But what would you say to like the self-directed retail investor who get valuation, um, they get individual stock stories. They kind of have a pretty decent risk management framework. They're not in and out of, of stocks and they realize the chop can really hurt them, but they want to use options, right? And we just define the three ways in which when I speak to retail investors, whether it be on CNBC, that I use them. What do you think the most common mistake is of, of self-directed investors using options? I think it's not having an understanding of what fair value is on some of these things, right? You go to 10 different vol guys and they'll give you all subjective things on valuation, right? What is rich? What is cheap when you're looking at an option? But I think the pitfalls come when they try to participate without understanding the intricate details that exist. So usually we'll try to gravitate towards telling people that they should outsource this. You know, and we work with family offices, fund of funds, individual investors, RAs, because we've worked with RAs and they're very good at what they do. However, their understanding towards options and the pricing mechanics towards them, they don't have a good understanding towards. It's the same thing like if we wanted to open a division and trade treasuries. I'm not going to go and trade treasuries. I don't. We call it style shift, right? <laughs> and so and so when, when when really smart people start to do things that is kind of outside their lane, you start to question that. And, and I totally get that. Let's shift gears for a little bit here. We talked a little bit about what you were seeing in the volatility market in late 2021 and what happened in 2022. And it's, it's interesting. We're kind of getting into the meat of Q4 earnings season. We know that implied volatility and individual names kind of gets ramped up because four times a year, every publicly traded company, they, there's a, a date on the calendar where they're going to speak to the street and they're going to give guidance and they're going to talk about their business. And so the uncertainty around that causes market makers in the options market to widen their volatility bands and what they're willing to sell as far as options are concerned. And then after the fact, we usually see a huge crush. And that's where I've always seen individual investors really disappointed to your point point is like, they think this stock is going up. The company reports a good quarter and the stock is up. They bought an at the money call and they're not making any money. You know what I mean? So that's a really frustrating thing. But talk to us a little bit about how 2022 was this year where the NASDAQ was down about 30%, a little more. The S&P was down about 20%. We haven't even really officially had a recession yet here. What would you expect if the VIX were to come in because Q4 earnings were not as bad as expected? And we saw this last year. March into April, June into August, and then again, October and early December, in and around earnings period, we saw the market have these counter trend rallies, big rallies, right? And that's when the VIX kind of came down below 20, and those were great opportunities to sell stocks. Are you expecting that sort of pattern to continue in 2023? I don't think based on the environment that we're seeing right now, there's anything that's making us believe that there's going to be a, a dramatic shift. I think what investors may find that may be more surprising is that if 
an exogenous event doesn't present itself, right? Some sort of weird macro data or something like that. I think you'll start seeing volatility drop lower and lower and lower. And I think 2022 was the year where a lot of investors were trying to buy volatility and they got smoked. I think a lot of people are saying, well, the VIX floor is 20. The VIX, you know, VIX floor is 20 and VIX at 17 would completely throw everybody off guard. I think that's like the pain trades of some effect. However, when we look back historically, those are some of the open windows that present itself for a true volatility spike to happen when everybody's off guard, right? So what we think is going to happen is a lot of people are going to get tired of the hedging stuff. They're going to get tired of volatility. Maybe the CTA stuff will underperform. And that's when people may get caught off sides and you have this big leg down and everybody's like with their hands in the air. It's really difficult to get a crash when everybody is overhedged, right? But- And you think that was a big part of 2022 because again, we had a 35% decline line in Q1 of 2020 during the pandemic, and that caught everybody off guard from an all-time high. But then months later, we're, we're back towards those highs. In 2022, there was a lot of damage under the surface that was already happening in the stock market, just not in the major indices, in the S&P and the NASDAQ. And do you think a lot of institutional money, they came in and they were hedged up? And that's one of the reasons why we had a pretty orderly sell-off for most of the year, and we had these really big counter-trend rallies when they would kind of take their hedges off. That's definitely one dynamic as to why Vol uh, reacted the way it did. And and we get this a lot when investors come to us, right? They ask us, what is the next black swan event? And we're like, we have no clue, right? The, the view is we trade in a certain process and we look to take advantage of certain anomalies that present itself. And if you have something like this in your portfolio over the course of time, it will show the value in itself. It's, it's the exact same way as insurance. You don't buy insurance in anticipation your home is going to burn down next week, right? You're not t- trying to time your home burning down, but you buy it and you tuck it away and you say, this is going to pay off one day. And that's how you have to look at something like tail risk or volatility in your portfolio, as opposed to, yeah, I'm going to try to time this because, you know, this guy believes that this is going to happen in England or something like that. You're trying to do the hardest thing in the world when you're trying to time a crash and get it down to the T. Chris elegantly said what I've been trying to say on air for a number of months, if not longer, in terms of why vol hasn't moved. And I think you're spot on. And I agree with everything you said. In terms of, let's just sort of end it by asking about your client base, about the size of your group, how people can find you, uh, those types of things for people, the audience that might be interested. Yeah, absolutely. So we deal with fund of funds, we deal with RIAs, we deal with individual investors, we deal with large allocators. We have three institutional allocators. If anybody wants to reach out, you go to ambrusgroup.com. You feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. Yeah, where where, where, where are you on Twitter? What's your handle here? I just I just follow you, but I, I got to- I'll uh, follow you back. It's, yeah. it's K-S-I-D-I-I-I. That, be, beware, because it's super weird. I have these like fake imposter bot type things. So you've people made it. Make, like, you've made it, dude. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I well, guess well, that's one way. Yeah, but guy, if you look at his pinned tweet from April 2019, live, breathe, eat, sleep, trading, nothing else i rather do. This is like the MBA for me. What do you think of that, guy? Is that, is <laughs> I mean, that- it's clearly there's an insinuation there. If I'm reading between the lines, there's sort of a humble brag that at one time you had a game, you have a handle, <laughs> and you think you could basically get out there and start draining threes against a lumbering power forward like myself. Is that accurate? 
<laughs> he, he's, no, I don't know about that, man. No, uh, the, the the truth behind that tweet is I was an okay basketball player in high school. You know, as a young kid, everybody has uh, ambitions and dreams to go to the NBA, right? But as I grew into myself a lot more uh, over a decade ago, I really fell in love with this game. And truly, you could pay me $5 million more to go do something else and I wouldn't do it. The, the game of speculation is a beautiful game and it's a beautiful art. I really have an appreciation towards it. Well, we're absolutely fortunate to have you join us. We're going to be hearing a lot more from you for sure. Look forward to hopefully seeing you at the end of the month down in South Beach. But Chris, thanks for joining Dan and myself. Yeah, thanks, Chris. We can't wait to have you back. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.